The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to our uh, Lamort D'Arthur discussion, our Sir Thomas Mallory discussion here at the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 35, and tonight we are going to finish the book at last. Uh, this has been uh, a, a, a great journey, almost three times, well, more than twice as long as any other uh, Mythgard Academy <laughs> uh, discussion we've ever had. Um, but this has been uh, really great. And those of you who have been attending live week by week for the better part of a year uh, uh, deserve great kudos for keeping up and coming along with me. Uh, and also those of you who are watching and, or listening to this uh, uh, asynchronously also deserve credit for getting through all the way to the end here. Um, so uh, anyway... Before we get started, a, a few uh, uh, announcements. We've got some uh, exciting stuff here. I'm glad to be back, first of all. Uh, it was an awesome week off. Last week I was in Iceland with my family, and it was spectacular. We had such a great time. We rented an RV, and we drove around uh, southern Iceland and saw lots of awesome things, and uh, it was great. First time I've ever been there, and it was uh, it was lovely. I recommend it. Um uh, I didn't quite get to the center of the earth, Jennifer, but uh, we were uh, 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 we saw all kinds of things. It feels like the end of the earth in some ways. We need uh, uh, some of the landscapes there are really just very amazing. Um, I was not at the battle, the Battle of Winterfell, um, but I don't think I was far away actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. No, no, I didn't get all the way up that far. Um, I, I, I really only went around the southern part of the island. My uh, kids already have a plan that we need to go back to Iceland and go all the way up around the northern half of the island as well. Um, but since we'd never been there before, we really wanted to see a bunch of the stuff that was that's really down primarily in the south of Iceland. So um, anyway, uh, that was great fun, but I'm, I'm delighted to be back, excited uh, both to uh, finish up uh, the Sir Thomas Mallory class and move on to our next discussion immediately afterwards, uh, uh, which I'm going to be talking about in a second. So let me share with you a couple of the things that are going on here and that are coming up soon uh, of uh, relevance and interest to all of you fine people who are engaged in the Mythgard Academy stuff. So first, uh, a big Mythmoot announcement this week. You may have already seen or heard about this, but this is really cool, and I am super excited. So Mythmoot, first of all, I'm just excited about Mythmoot. Mythmoot is uh, the event of the year, uh, every year, down at the end of June, uh, down in Leesburg, Virginia. And for those of you who can possibly make it live, it is such a wonderful experience, such a, a wonderful community, uh, uh, you know, days of, of uh, intellectual stimulation and fun and camaraderie. It's just a, a really great time. Um, however, I also know that a lot of people can't make it. You know, it's just too far to travel. You can't make the time to uh, to be there. I, I know that some people are envious of those folks who live relatively close to Leesburg. So, you know, for people who can just kind of pop in for a day or something, even if they don't have the whole weekend off. Um, but um, 
anyway, it's I know it's very difficult for many people to get there. So we are finally offering this year something which I've been I've been hoping to do for a while, and I'm I've been uh, I, I'm so glad that we're finally we've finally brought it together this year, and that is Mootcast, the ability to attend MythMoot virtually, um, so that if you want now, obviously it's not the same thing, right? You can't. There's no replacement for being able to be there, uh, at, you know, in the sharing meals together and, uh, you know, hanging out by the fire pits until two o'clock in the morning. There's no, uh, there's no substitute for that, but at least you can attend all of the talks and papers and things, uh, so that, you know, you can still be involved in all the, the sort of the, you know, the, the meat of the conference and, and, to to be connected with everything, uh, there. So Mootcast, um, we're going to be live streaming in in all of the rooms uh, in which uh, all of our panels are happening and everything, so you won't miss anything. Not only will you be able to see uh, any panel throughout the day, but you will also get access to a digital archive of all of the recordings of all of the sessions. So even if there are two different sessions going on at the same time that you want to see, you can see them both. You can see one live, and then you can go back and uh, see the other recording. By the way, people who attend live will also get the archived recordings as just sort of a bonus as part of your registration. So for everybody who attends live, you'll also get access to the to the the video archive as well. Um, so anyway, there's uh, it's true, Stephen. You can't visit the room of requirement virtually either. Yeah, it's another thing that you miss out on by not being able to be there personally. But again, it's so much better than in the past when you're just completely out of luck. Uh, so if you're interested, go to the, this is the MythMoot page, of course, uh, uh, on uh, Signum SignumUniversity.org/MythMoot. Um, you click here, you come to a page which will give you more details. If you have questions about how this would work and everything, it's going to be really simple. Just register uh, for MythMoot on the registration page now. There's an option for, for MootCast. It's a $75 registration. So again, that's for full access to everything for the whole weekend and recordings afterwards. Um, and um, yeah, so there's the registration button here. So just choose that registration option and it's, it's really simple. Um, and then... Um, uh, the, you know, there's all kinds of details here and FAQs and things like that. So if you want to learn more about how it works, it'll be pretty simple. You register a little bit before the conference begins. We'll send you the links and uh, that are connected with the schedule, so you know how to how to get to which room for which things and and things like that. Um, and also, I, I, I want to emphasize that it's this is not going to be available afterwards. So this is not going to be a you know an archive thing that's going to be that's going to be publicly available. Um, this is uh, this is this is just registration for the event. So when MythMood is over, it's done, right? So if you want uh, if you want access to this, if you want to be part of this, then you know you gotta. Conferences are these are these are events, right? This is not uh, you know a course that we're archiving uh, f- for the future. If you want to, if you want to be a part of it, you got to be a part of it, right? So that's that's uh, that's how this works. Anyway, so, um, yeah, yeah, that's um, uh, that's it. And so, Marilyn, yes, it's uh, not the the keynotes won't be available on YouTube. That's actually part of one of the reasons that we wanted to do this. It's actually really awkward. Um, it's very difficult uh, to. Uh, 
most speakers are very uncomfortable with having their keynote addresses posted on YouTube. Uh, so it makes it it's makes it very difficult to get speakers to come to MythBoot if they know we're going to be permanently and publicly posting uh, recordings of their talks. Um, this is usually not how uh, those things work. Um, so this makes it possible for us to make those things available to everybody, um, uh, but not uh, not posted publicly on our site. Um, yeah, anyway, um, let's see. Stephen is wondering, will there, will there be some sort of chat set up during MythMoot? Yeah, no, I'm sure we can, we can certainly use the Rumble chat. Um, uh, no question we can get a, we can get a, a, a version of that going. That certainly seems possible. Um, but, uh, anyway, cool. Um, all right. So anyway, just wanted to let you guys know that's a big new thing that is coming. Um, a smaller thing than MythMoot, uh, but one of even more direct relevance to those of you who have been enjoying the Mallory class with me. The next MythGuard Movie Club. So you may know, you may know the MythGuard Movie Club sort of alternates between new films, new releases, uh, and older films. Uh, so they're doing an older film this month in May. And they have chosen one uh, that uh, uh, sort of fits with our theme here. So they're going to be looking at the 1967 Camelot film, uh, a, a classic Arthurian adaptation uh, of the 20th century. Um, so I think that this will be really fun. I'm going to join the panel here to talk about this. Um, so uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be, going to be, here, be here with Chris and Curtis and Kat, and we're going to talk about uh, Camelot. So I certainly hope you'll be able to join us there for that. Uh, you can uh, go to the, the web page here. This is on the Mythgard Institute uh, site uh, and um, get uh, all the information you would like there. It's going to be on May 30th at the end of the month here. Um, and, um, yeah, exactly, Arthur. We're doing this in the lusty month of May. That's exactly, that's exactly the, the goal here. There's going to be lots of springing and, uh, burgeoning and flourishing. Uh, uh, I'm sure we'll be flourishing, uh, uh, you know, bur bursting out in leaves and flowers and things all over the place. It's going to be awesome. Um, and, you will notice a little teaser down here, a little reminder of our next discussion. Uh, the uh, Sauron Defeated, the web page is up. You can see the schedule. Um, we're going to be moving on to that. I have my, uh, right under my copy of Mallory sitting over here, I have my copy of Sauron Defeated ready to go uh, for our next discussion, which will begin on the 15th. And if you scroll down... Here on this page, you will see the schedule. The reading schedule has been posted. So there we are, first week, May 15th, first two chapters of part one as we uh, look at the end of the uh, the history of the Lord of the Rings. So as the we, we look at the last phase of the draft process of the Lord of the Rings and then, of course, move on to the centerpiece of this volume of the history of Middle-earth, which is the Notion Club Papers, which is a very remarkable document this combination of him making a taking another shot at the Numenor slash Atlantis slash time travel thing that he started that Tolkien started doing back in the Lost Road which we looked at way back in volume four uh five way back in volume five um uh, of the history of Middle-earth 
Um, so he's not only kind of coming at that idea again, but also simultaneously doing a sort of spoof of the Inklings themselves uh, and of the Inklings gatherings. Really, really fascinating. The Ocean Club papers uh, is uh, really, really good. So anyway, um, that's... Uh, that's that's what's next, right? And so you can see the schedule. They're going to be a few weeks off there, summertime, and I'm going to be on the road a couple times. But uh, we will be finishing by the end of August is the goal. Uh, and then September, starting something new. Who knows what? Almost time for another election. So that is the... Uh, that is the immediate road ahead. Also, I would uh, I would mention summer courses at Signum University start next week. They start on Monday. So uh, if you're thinking of signing up for any of our summer courses, now would be the time to uh, get your registrations in. So um, I know, Zach, doesn't it seem weird, right? Uh, doesn't it seem strange that uh, like 13 weeks, right? Uh, they, that's that's It seems like we're barely going to have started by then, right? Yeah, it's going to take a little while to reorient from... Uh, uh, from from Mallory, which I always knew was going to be a bit uh, beyond the normal scale. So, okay. Without any further ado, let us return to the text because we are finishing the book now tonight. All right. Uh, so tonight's class I've called a good end uh, because whether or not you. Uh, like the end of the book, we do get the end of the characters. And remember that that little mention, right, that uh, uh, Mallory made about Guinevere specifically, uh, saying that she was a good lover and that she came to a good end. Um, and he suggested a causal relationship between those two things. She was a good lover and she came and therefore she came to a good end. Um and of course, we also have the end of Lancelot as well. This whole book has been called La Morte d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur, and uh, but we're finally going to get to The Death of Arthur, obviously. Um, but you will have noticed that Maori does not linger for that long on the death of Arthur. We, we, we do get some about the death of Arthur, or maybe does he really die, right? Um, but... Of course, the real, the final culmination of the book is the death of Lancelot. Um, so we're going to get there. We're going to see all of them safely in their graves uh, by the end of the night. So let us move forward. So we begin with a sudden but inevitable betrayal of Sir Mordred, which we have been anticipating since back in the old days when Merlin was telling us it was going to happen on every other page. Remember that uh, King Arthur... Probably because he has uh, grown so used to seeing warnings written in gold letters all over the place that he overlooks them like furniture nowadays, uh, has, with rather poor judgment, left Sir Mordred in charge of the kingdom when he goes away. So this is him going away with Sir Gawain uh, to assault the kingdom of Sir Lancelot, right, down in France. Uh, after uh, Guinevere has been returned, right? Uh, and Mordred is now hatching his plan. As Sir Mordred was ruler of all England, he let mark letters as though that they had come from beyond the sea. And the letters specified that King Arthur was slain in battle with Sir Launcelot. Wherefore, Sir Mordred made a parliament and called the, the lorders together, and there he made them to choose him king, 
and so was he crowned at Counterbury, and held a feast there fifteen days. And afterward he drew him unto Winchester, and there he took Queen Guinevere, and sighed plainly that he wold wed her, which was his uncle's wife and his father's wife. And so he made ready for the feast, and a, and a die prefixed that they should be wedded. Wherefore Queen Guinevere was passing heavy. But she durst not discover her heart, but spoke fire, and agreed to Sir Mordred's will. And anon she desired of Sir Mordred to go to London, to buy all manner thinges that longed, that longed to the bridal. And because of her fair speech, Sir Mordred trusted her, and gaff her leave. And so when she come to London, she took the Tower of London, and suddenly in all hast possible she stuffed it with all manner of vitail, and well garnished it with men, and so kept it. And Juan Sir Mordred wist this, he was passing wroth out of measure, and short tal to mac, he lied a mickty siege about the tower, and mad many a sautus, and threw engines unto them, and shot great gunners. But all mick not prevail, for Queen Guinevere wold never for fire speech, neither for foal, never to trust unto Sir Mordred to come in his hondas again. All right. So Mordred betrays Arthur. One of the things that you remember after this, we get some sort of bribery happening, right? First, Mordred deceives the lords that are remaining in the land, those that have not gone abroad with King Arthur uh, and Gawain. Uh, he deceives them into thinking that Arthur's dead, and so let's just call this a succession, right? And you're going to appoint me because he left me as steward, and I'm his nephew and his son, right? So that's kind of double jeopardy, so there we go. I should be heir, and so he gets himself crowned. This might seem like a short-sighted plan, right? Like once Arthur returns, it's going to become awkward, uh, and he will certainly uh, be deposed. But that, of course, is not what happens, um, because he follows this up with bribery, right? He follows this up by winning the loyalty of these lords unto himself so that when Arthur's, uh, when the truth is revealed, and of course, Mordred can pretend that he didn't know, right? Um, but w when the truth is revealed, uh, th then uh, about Arthur's not yet being dead, um, then they will remain loyal to him. Um and no, uh, Marilyn and Stephen, you are correct that this is the first time uh, uh, Maori has made any reference to guns, that is, to cannon. Um, mostly, in part, I think, you know, it's tempting to imagine that he is deliberately associating them with Mordred, right? Um, as if the guns are themselves this sort of, you know, kind of like Tolkien in his allusion, his indirect allusion to canon uh, in The Hobbit, right? When he talks about the ingenious devices that goblins have invented um, for the killing of many people at once and, you know, loving explosions and things like that. Um, it's tempting to kind of, in the same way that Tolkien associated uh, cannons and, and, uh, uh, and such like with goblins, that Maori is doing the same thing, essentially, associating it with Mordred. But I doubt it. Um, what we're really seeing is this is the first time we've had a siege of this kind, uh, at least for a long time. I mean, we had a siege uh, back in Cornwall, right, with Uther at the very beginning. Um, 
So Mordred seems to have cannons where Uther Pendragon did not seem to have great guns. Um, but um, but at the same time, I don't th- I'm not even sure that that's necessarily true. It's just he's mentioned them here and he didn't mention them before. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure how much to read, like how much significance to read into the fact that Mordred comes after uh, comes after her, comes after Guinevere with guns. Honestly, if you think back, um, again, especially it's easy to project backwards a kind of Tolkienian response to technology, right? Because you notice it's not only the guns, uh, but it's also engines, right? There's all this technology that Mordred is bringing to bear, trying to, uh, to uh, 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 you know, extract Guinevere from the Tower of London. Um, but... <sighs> If we think back, technology of this kind, engines and that kind of cleverness and, and, and such like, was primarily associated with Merlin, right? Merlin was the one who could perform these technological marvels. Um, remember, he was the one who could, like, move the round table, like, move it and reassemble it in, you know, in a jiffy, right? That was a Merlin feat. Um, there are some of the earlier texts which, you know, describe Merlin moving like Stonehenge, right? Um, uh, you know, in a jiffy, uh, because he can, right? Um, and again, that was a, that was attributed, even in those older sources, not to magic by Merlin, but to, to, to technology, to cunning, to, to, uh, to, to skill. Um, so, yeah, I mean... I agree that it fits. So, for, uh, you know, Marilyn is pointing out that, of course, cannons are, are like the opposite of one-on-one jousting. Um, and, uh, you know, Tomas sees it as the end of chivalry and the beginning of professional warfare. <sighs> yeah, I don't know that that would have been as obvious to Mallory. Uh, it's possible. Like, that that reading can work, especially, I know it's 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 very tempting to read it that way because it's, it's Mordred. Right. Um, and this kind of does look like, and you know, this is the dark ending of the Arthurian era and everything. And, you know, the, the, now the decline is in, you know, Arthur has come across the top of the, the, the wheel of fortune and everything is crashing to the ground. See, look, there's cannon. I totally get that. But remember, um, remember that it's, uh, uh, the fact that this is the beginning of modern warfare in which chivalry will be irrelevant will be irrelevant was very far from obvious to Sir Thomas Mallory in the 15th century. Um, you'll remember it wasn't even entirely obvious to people in the 19th century when they were fighting. Uh, heck, it wasn't entirely obvious to everybody at the beginning of the of World War One, right? So, um, you know, they figured that out by the end of World War One, but still that. Uh, that idea is way in the future. And as far as it being the opposite of sort of one-on-one uh, competitions of personal prowess um, and and chivalry, you know, in, in jousting, again, I don't think that that is necessarily something that would have been in Maori's mind either. They had canon in the 15th century, but it is... V- it's just for buildings like you use it to blow apart buildings. It's not very reliable. Um, it doesn't work super well. And there is no sense in which it is a substitute for cavalry. You know, um, it's just it's just not, not 15th century canon, certainly. Um, 
Uh, so yeah, Stephen says it's like archers taken to the extreme. Yeah, in a sense. And Stephen, you'll remember we did have archers associated. The only person who's used archers, the only archers that we've seen in the length and breadth of this book have been the ones that Meliagant utilized in cowardly fashion, right? Shooting Lancelot's horse. Uh, so we do have that particular association. But again, even that, cannon aren't archers, because you can't aim them at people. They're way too imprecise for that in the in the 15th century. I mean, I, unless I'm very wrong about the state of canon technology in the 15th century, you could just aim it at a building and kind of hope. Um, it was not it was there was the very beginning of canon of great guns uh, in Western warfare. Um, and it was certainly not going to be utilized against knights. Right. It's utilized against walls, which is why it comes out here. Right. Um, there's nothing that a knight can do against a castle, but there's something a cannon can do against a castle. Right. So uh, that's that's the tool for the job here. So I don't think that that would have been seen as unchivalrous necessarily. Right. Um, what you do after the um, the walls are leveled by the cannon, if indeed the walls get leveled by the cannon, um, which again, also not obvious. It's not like they had exploding shells, right? Um, so if you're shooting solid shot at a stone wall, especially at a stone wall, which is like, you know, 10 feet thick, which some of the stone walls were, um, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be pinging away at it for, uh, quite some time. Um, but, um, yeah, Robert. Exactly. They were trying to use. Uh, they 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 were using cannon uh, on 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 ships, of course, um, and as naval defenses. Absolutely. Um, uh, but even that, of course, is a century later um, uh, in Henry VIII's time. Robert is thinking of. Um, yeah, and I think they have improved a bit by then. Um, I don't think you could put a 15th century cannon on a boat. Uh, they're massive. Absolutely massive. Um, but um, anyway, um, so anyway, okay. Guinevere, Guinevere's actions here, um, and I don't know, uh, some of you might also have been like me in this passage thinking about Tolkien's Fall of Arthur, right? Um, and you'll notice some of the ways in which Tolkien himself chose to change this story, right? When he told his version of it in The Fall of Arthur, or started to tell his version of it in The Fall of Arthur. Um, and one of the main differences is that he has Mordred burning with lust, with desire uh, for Guinevere. Uh, he's sort of in love in a not so very healthy way, uh, but there's... It's not just a political move. Here it seems like it's primarily a political move. Marrying Guinevere by force is part of usurping Arthur's uh, uh, throne and seems by Mordred to be intended to be just part and parcel of that whole political process, right? Guinevere here is not interested. She is not into Mordred, right? But it's not a personal revulsion. It's not, this does not seem to be a romantic issue, right? We don't have any reason to think, for instance, that Guinevere disbelieves the report. We're not told Guinevere's point of view here at all, right? 
Guinevere presumably has been told the same thing that the rest of the court has, right? She's seen the letters that purport to be from abroad that say that Arthur's dead. Um, so in refusing to marry Mordred, uh, she's making a really kind of interesting statement here, right? I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think this is her being picky, right? Nor do I think this is necessarily, uh, I mean, is she being faithful to Lancelot? Is that what's happening here? Uh, maybe. Um, uh, I'm not sure. But um, but certainly, th- this may also be her smelling a rat, right? And just disbelieving Mordred and wanting to uh, uh, do her part to kind of sp- Put you know put a put a uh, spoke in his political wheels here, um, but um, yeah yeah. Um, yeah. Bruce points out he can't see any reason why cannons would be less chivalrous than other siege weapons like trebuchets. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. If if it's really just a, a piece of siege equipment that you use to try to level people's walls, that that that's been part of warfare for a long time. It's just a new mechanism for it, right? Um, that's just what I was thinking. Um, but I agree, David, her outwitting of Mordred does seem like one of the smartest things she's done in the story. This is one of the most active, uh, one of the most proactive, uh, and one of the most, I think one way or another, this is a good look for Guinevere, right? Um, if she disbelieves in the death of Arthur and, you know, the purported death of Arthur uh, and opposes his usurper, then that is both cunning and plucky of Guinevere. And she has not always been either of those things. Right. Um, if she does believe that Arthur's dead, but she still doesn't want any part of Mordred's new regime, that's still kind of a good thing. Right. Um, even if she's just kind of holding out for Lancelot, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's fine. And Carrie, you're absolutely right. Um, no, Zach, it is known that Mordred hated her. Mord- Mordred and Agravain were the two who were uh, primarily agitating against Lancelot and her. Um, so absolutely, as Carrie says, she has she has reasons to hate him. Right. Absolutely. There's there's she has very little. Re- even if she believes that Arthur's dead, even if she does not, if she's not just holding out for Lancelot, right, uh, romantically, um, she has lots of reason to say, I want nothing to do with him, right? Because uh, he's a scumbag. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, so uh, let's see. Is it saying that Lancelot's dead too? doesn't say that explicitly. Uh, was slain in battle with Lancelot. I think meaning he was slain while in battle with Lancelot. Not that he and Lancelot were both slain in battle. Um, I don't think the letters are purporting that Lancelot is dead. Um, but we don't know what her information is, right? One of the things, one of the other things that Tolkien does do, right, is give us Guinevere's perspective uh, in this moment, right? Or a moment kind of like this. Um but um, uh, which Mallory doesn't do at all, right? Um, by the way, I love the Tower of London, right? Tower of London kind of built by William the Conqueror, right? At least the White Tower, uh, you know, the thing that was generally called the Tower of London. Um, and of course, this is meant to predate that by a number of centuries, uh, but it's okay. 
Tower of London has always been there, so it's all it was probably there in the fifth century, no problem. Um, all right, let's keep going. Then come there warded unto Sir Mordred that King Arthur had arised the siege from Sir Launcelot and was coming homeward with a great host to be avenged upon Sir Mordred. Wherefore Sir Mordred mad writes unto all the barony of this land, and much people drew unto him, for then was the common voice among them that with King Arthur was never other life but war and strife, and with Sir Mordred was great joy and bliss. Thus was King Arthur depraved and evil said of, and many there were that King Arthur had brocked up of noct and given them londes, that meeked not then sigh him a good word. Lo, all ye Englishmen, see ye not what a mischief here was, for he that was the most, the most king and noblest kneeked of the world, and most loved of the fellowship of, and most loved the fellowship of noble kneeked and by him they were all upholden, and ye make not these Englishmen, and yet make not these Englishmen hold them content with him. Lo, thus was the old custom and usages of this land, and men sigh that we of this land have not yet lost that custom. Alas, this is a great default of us Englishmen, for there may no thing please us, no term. And so far had the people at that time. They were better pleased with Sir Mordred than they were with the noble King Arthur, and much people drew unto Sir Mordred, and said they would abide with him for better and for worse. And so Sir Mordred drew with a great host to Dover, and there he heard say that King Arthur would arrive, and so he thought to beat his own father from his own londes. And the most party of all England held with Sir Mordred, for the people were so newfangled. Oh, man. Now, um, the... Um Oh, Bruce, right. Of course, you're right. Bruce is also pointing out, needless to say, the canon that we're discussing would be massively anachronistic for 5th century warfare. Yeah, well, I mean... Heck, so is the armor and the jousting. Uh, so uh, we're long past the point where we can object to anachronism uh, as far as 5th century is concerned, but it's all good. Um, yeah, Brian says, uh, can we see in this uh, passage uh, in part a political commentary on the Wars of the Roses? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I wouldn't say necessarily even political commentary. Just this is spoken by a person who has known the Wars of the Roses most of his life, right? Um, that is what modern, modern England is, you know, the during the century of the War of the Roses. That's, that, is, uh, that is what us Englishmen are about. And so, yeah, there was plenty of newfangleness going on. Uh, plenty of examples, if you wanted to look for them, of... Um, People not being pleased, no term, uh, and changing their allegiances and uh, betraying their previous loyalties and uh, and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I would say so. I don't think I don't think that this is satire exactly, nor do I think that he's exactly it's not like he's 
pushing a, a particular agenda. In fact, it's really kind of interesting. To me, the thing that's most interesting about this passage is how nonpartisan he is, right? Um, that is, I don't see this as a, you know, a veiled, um, uh, at least certainly not exclusively, as like a, a veiled comment on the people who are like, I don't see this as a pro-Lancaster or pro-York message in particular, right? But rather just a lament of the state of the modern world. And here again, we can see, in this sense, it's actually kind of dovetailing interestingly with our canon discussion from earlier on. Um, he doesn't see the technology thing and the modern warfare coming, but he does see the, the degradation of the modern world. Right. And he feels keenly the way in which the modern world has fallen away from the old ideals. Right. And this, I think the way that we begin to see this, I was about to say anxiety, but that's not the right word. Lament really is better. Um, we see this lament growing. Right. As we see the shape of the overall story, how after the Holy Grail, now we, we are we're, we're over the top of the Wheel of Fortune and things are crashing down down towards the modern era, right? Remember, we got this sort of in moral principle and moral fiber earlier on with no politics connected, just about lovers. Remember old lovers and lovers nowadays, right? Um, we're like, you know, constitutionally different in, in, our, in, our, uh, in, our, in our bodies and our spirits. And of course, that has political implications too. We can see the way that people respond to Mordred is a sign of what's to come, right? And uh, so in this way, I think we can say that um, uh, Mordred is associated with modernity, right? Um, and that's a, a, troubling, a troubling thing, right? Notice how... If you think about that, if you, if you think about that sort of allegorically for a minute, right? If Mordred is associated with modernity and Arthur is associated with these older days, right? The days of the time of King Arthur, like when 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 lovers were true lovers and um, uh, and you know uh, people were honorable and you've got the the you, know, you think about the knightly oath and the ideals of chivalry which have been in decay already, right? Even before we've come through, um, we've come around the other side here with, with Mordred. We've already seen it slipping. Think of the way in which he has, and you can begin to see the importance of Lancelot, right? This is why I think for Mallory, in Mallory's story here, Lancelot is a more important character than Arthur. Arthur is the, he's the, uh, he's the symbol, Right? Um, he is the figurehead of this whole world, but it's not really about him. It's not about him personally, because he wasn't a knight. He wasn't demonstrate. He was a good king, right? And 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 we see he is the most king and noblest knight of the world. So he he is a good. He is a noble knight himself, um, and most loved the fellowship of noble knights. That is that is the biggest thing, right? That he loves and upholds. Noble knights, right? That's his job as king. And that's what makes Arthur 
great, right? That's what makes Arthur such a great king is not that he himself accomplished much, which we haven't seen him do very much of at all uh, in the last 500 pages or so, but because he established this fellowship and upheld them, right? So the most important figure is the one who is at the head of that fellowship, the one who is actually articulating, pursuing, and defending the whole concept and definition of knighthood, right? And that's Lancelot. Lancelot is, for that reason, much more important uh, than Arthur uh, in what this story is kind of uh, pointing to here. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Stephen says, so after the death of Mordred, it'll be postmodern. No, it'll just be more modern, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I guess, kind of saying the same thing. Um, Yeah, so the... um, Oh, the, the word... Uh, the word newfangle. Um, I don't think, I doubt he's inventing it. It's a, it's a, uh, uh, it's not an unknown word. It's going to be a very popular word, especially poetically in the 16th century. A uh, bunch of 16th century poetry, uh, poets are going to use that word. Wyatt, Tom, uh, Thomas Wyatt uses it. Um, uh, in some of his famous love poems, Spencer uses it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a common word, newfangle, and as the adjective newfangleness uh, being the noun, um, uh, it's an interesting word, usually shown hyphenated like that. Um, but uh, the people being newfangled, um, that is, uh, it just means changeable, inconstant. Uh, and that is a great default of us Englishmen, he says, right? And really of the whole modern world. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, fond of novelty, Robert. It is. It is dated to the to the late fourteenth century. It's so Mallory is on the is is on the cutting edge of newfangle there. That, that's cool. I wasn't quite sure about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yep, fickle, that's, well, see, David, it will come to be used in the poetic uses that I mentioned of it. It's often uh, used about women, right? Um, being newfangled, meaning they've turned and they've taken another lover and dumped you, right? Um, you might accuse your beloved of newfangleness, right? If she if she's not into you anymore and has moved on, um, that's that was fairly frequent in 16th century. Um, okay. Anyway, so I think it only takes a little bit of imaginative effort to see why Mallory was so passionate, why he would associate newfangleness, why he would associate, uh, this, uh, uh, changeableness, uh, in the people, um, with England in particular. Um, you only have to know a little bit about the Wars of the Roses to see uh, why he would think that. Gawain, of course, received, in the battle when Arthur lands and has his uh, fight with Mordred, 
As Mordred tries to prevent him landing, Gawain receives his mortal wound, and he receives his mortal wound because someone hits him again on the same spot on the head that Lancelot has already dented twice with his sword, right? He gets stricken upon the old wound, and he knows now that he's received a mortal wound, so he writes a letter uh, to send to Lancelot. So here's Gawain's letter, which this is the last thing he ever does. He dictates this letter and then dies. Unto thee, Sir Launcelot, flower of all noble knictes that ever I heard of or saw by my dies, I, Sir Gawain, King Lotte's son of Orkney, and sister's son unto the noble King Arthur, send thee greeting, latting thee to have knowledge that the tenth day of my I was smitten upon the old wound that thou gaff me afore the city of Benwick, and through that wound I am come to my death day. And I wall that all the world wit that I, Sir Gawain, kneeked of the table round, socked my death, and not through thy deserving, but mine own seeking. Wherefore I beseech thee, Sir Launcelot, to return again unto this realm, and see my tomb, and pray some prayer, more otherless, for my soul. And this psalm die, that I wrote this psalm said this psalm sedul, I was hurt to the death, which wound was first given of thy hand, Sir Launcelot, for of a more nobler man meeked I not be slain. Also, Sir Launcelot, for all the love that ever was betwixt us, mock no tarrying, but come over the sea in all goodly hast that ye may, with your noble knictes, and rescue that noble king that mad thee knict, for he is full strikely bestad with unfalse traitor, which is my half-brother, Sir Mordred, for he hath crowned himself king, and would have wedded my lady, Queen Guinevere. And so had he done, had she not kept the Tower of London with strong hond. And so the tenth day of my last past, the, the tenth day of my last past, my lord King Arthur, and we all landed upon them at Dover, and there he put that false traitor Sir Mordred to flicked, and so hit there misfortuned me to be smitten upon the stroke that ye gaff me of old. And the dat of this letter was was written but two hours and a half afore my death, written with mine own hand and subscribed with part of my heart blood, and therefore I require thee, most famous kneeked of the world, that thou wilt see my tomb. I was wrong. Sorry, he didn't dictate it. He wrote it with his own hand, right? How about that? Sir Gawain is literate. Um. Okay, so. This is a long letter, right? Um, my favorite thing is that, yeah, Arthur, that's my favorite part. My favorite thing is the precision with which Sir Gawain knows the moment of his death, right? He's like, okay, in two and a half hours from now, I am going to, uh, I am going to die, right? Um, so he's got that, he's got that scheduled quite close. This, I think, is meant not to be an oversight or a posthumous addition by, uh, you know, uh, an assistant, a clerk or something. Um, I think this is meant to be a, a, an insight, like a prophetic insight going, not, he doesn't just have a general sense that he's going to die, right? Um, it has been vouchsafed to him to know exactly when he is going to die. And so he 
knows he has the time and that he must take the time to write to Lancelot. Um, yeah, Robert, I do like that idea. He 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 left a blank, right, <laughs> for for the for the clerk to fill in. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Jennifer said maybe Merlin wrote it up somewhere for him. Yeah, what could be more likely? He, he Gawain turns his head to the side, and there's gold letters saying Sir Gawain here will die at exactly this hour of the day. Um, yeah, yeah. So we're not told the mechanism, Arthur, of how exactly he knows the precise moment of his death, but he uh, uh, he does seem to know that. I think that the point here, the reason I think that that's included or how that seems to fit in with this letter as a whole is Gawain's clarity of vision, right? He is about to die and he sees everything clearly now, right? Um, having been hit on the head enough times, now his his mind clears. He sees that he is in the wrong. And, and you're, you're absolutely right, Takako. I think it's really funny how he's like, I'm not blaming you, but it's totally the wound you gave. Did I mention that it, it was the, the wound that you gave? Uh, it, it does really sound like he's sort of like, I'm not saying it's your fault, but I'm going to totally guilt trip you anyway. Um, uh, no, I, I think that... Uh, the point of that is that he is emphasizing his own fault, right? Notice how when, the fir- when he emphasizes that at the beginning, right? Um, uh, I will that all the world wit that I, I, I want all the world to know that I, Sir Gawain, sought my death and not through thy deserving, right? So he's emphasizing that he is being killed by Lancelot, right? That it's Lancelot's wound that is ultimately causing his death. Um, But he is doing so in order not to heap guilt upon Lancelot or to accuse him of anything, right? Though goodness knows he's been accusing him of plenty up to this point. But to say it is is totally on me, right? Um, And it's... This is... This is a moment of penitence for Gawain, right? Gawain is perceiving that he messed up. Um, He is seeing that he was wrong. He was wrong to come after Lancelot. It's not Lancelot's fault. Um, It was entirely his initiative, and he deserved what he got. Um, And James, I agree, there is a little bit of self-aggrandizement involved here, too, right? But it's also... I don't know. There is a way in which... So, the thing about being killed by Lancelot, right? I wasn't killed by any scrub of Mordred's, right? No, no, no. I was killed by... Lan- Here, Let it be known that it was Lancelot who killed me, right? Because that is way more honorable than being killed by some, you know, schmo mercenary from uh, uh, from Mordred's army. Um, you can totally read it that way, and and I hear that, and I think that's definitely an element of what's going on here. But I also think there's more. I think that there's a, it's more personal. It, it seems it maybe seems a little bit strange, uh, I think, but I think that there's there's a bond here, right? Like Gawain likes to think that it was at Lancelot's hand that he received his death wound, right? I mean, if somebody has to kill him, he would rather that it be Lancelot, right? Um, it's like, since we're friends, right? The, you know, you can be the one to kill me. And again, I know that that seems a little bit weird, but but I really do think that he is asserting this sort of connection there, right? 
But again, remember, this is Gawain that we're talking about. One of the things we've seen from very early days, remember we saw this way back with Sir Balin, the feud between Sir Balin and the previous Lady of the Lake who, whom he decapitates, right? Um, and the whole source of the grievance there was that Sir Balin had killed her brother. I think it was brother, right? Had killed her brother. Um, and he had, like, the question was not whether or not he killed him. The question was whether it was murder or whether it was just you know, part of what happens when you joust somebody. Um, he claimed that it was just, you know, it wasn't a dishonorable killing, and she claimed that he murdered him. That is to say, and that was only the first example of many that we've seen, people who are inclined to be vengeful, people who are who want to take offense, people who are going to be very quick to... Um, you know, want to see wrongs and correct them, right? And Gawain has been the poster child of that subset of the Arthurian court, right? Um, they uh, don't generally just forgive deaths in combat, even if they're innocent. So Gawain going out of his way to say, you know what? It was your hand that killed me. It's absolutely my fault and not yours. You weren't in, you were completely in the right. I was falsely accusing you. And it's, it's not only okay that you killed me. It's good. It's good that you, I'm glad that it was you that killed me in when I was in the wrong and you were in the right. Um, you know, this is, uh, I, st I think so you can see it as kind of, a. a a pride thing on Gawain's part, but I think even more, it's kind of a, it's kind of a humble thing for Gawain, really. Um, and certainly running counter to not only his whole career, but especially to the end of his career, the kind of implacability which led him to go and attack Lancelot in the first place, right? Um, this is him not doing that. Uh, and that I think is that I think is really important. Um, and as we see, those may be his last words, but it's not going to be the very end of Gawain. King Arthur's dream. King Arthur hasn't had a dream in a long time. Remember when he used to dream, dream about boar bears, right? Anyway, here we go again. So upon Trinity Sunday at Nicht, King Arthur dreamed a wonderful dream, and in his dream him seemed that he saw upon a chaflet a chire, and the chire was fast to a wheel, and thereupon sate King Arthur in the richest cloth of gold that meeked be mad, and the king thought there was under him, far from him, an hideous deep black water, and therein was all manner of serpentis and wormes and wild beasts, foul and horrible. And suddenly the king thought that the wheel turned up sudoon, and he fell among the serpentes, and every beast took him by a limb. And Than the king cried as he lie in his bed, Help! Help! Okay, so this is King Arthur's great dream of the Wheel of Fortune. Uh, so this is very like a Ferris wheel, right? Except... Uh, usually they don't have the hinges, right? So when you're on the chair, you're only upright on the chair. Uh, when you're going up the, 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 the one side, you're kind of holding on to the chair and it's pulling you up, right? 
uh, and then you're seated comfortably, enthroned upon the chair at the top of the wheel, right? But then as the wheel tips off, you're you're falling when you're still barely clinging on. But then when it comes under, you get smashed down, right? And in this case, he is what lies beneath the wheel, right? The kind of the opposite is not just um, is not just I don't know what ignominy. It's not just uh, 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 the opposite of exaltation, right? There's a pit at the bottom. It is full of worms and serpents and a hideous, deep black water. Um, there is chaos and horror at the bottom of the wheel, right? Um, this is a this is an all or nothing wheel of fortune here. And once again, I think we can see Mallory's rather extreme vision of the modern world. What comes after Arthur, right? What comes after Arthur is that poor Arthur, our symbol for the old world, right? That centerpiece, that figurehead of the old world is going to be cast down out of his throne. And when he does, when the wheel is turned up so down, He's going to fall among the serpents and they're all going to take him by a limb. They're all going to grab him and rip him apart uh, by his limbs, right? Um, He is not just going to fall. He's going to be ripped to pieces um, and there will be nothing left. There's not even any ground upon which he could fall. Um, Yeah, yeah. Stephen, I agree. I don't don't know that we'll need Daniel's services for this dream. Probably not. I think we could probably do this one ourselves. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Joseph could be helpful. Arthur, I agree. I'm not saying I'd say no, but but I feel like I got this one, right? I, I feel like we can, we can, we can, we can see this. But again, one of the things that you notice Mordred is the villain, right? But notice how little play Mordred gets. We never really meet Mordred. I mean, we kind of do. Um, but Meliagant was a much more well-rounded villain than Mordred, right? In a sense, it's, it's, not, it's not really about Mordred, right? Um, this is not the great king is supplanted by the evil king, by the wicked king. Right. This is the old world falls and vanishes into the void. Right. And then and the new world contains nothing but like the dismembered shreds of the flesh of the old world. Right? I mean, it's it's a much more complete overturn. Um, there's no. And now Mordred comes to the top of the wheel. Right. Mordred ain't going to come to the top of the wheel. There ain't going to be anybody at the top of the wheel after this. Right. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so we get a very sobering vision of the future, not just personal future for Arthur, but of the entire realm. Here is the end from Sir Gawain, and that is the vision that Arthur receives. So the king seemed, so the king seemed, verily, that there come Sir Gawain unto him with a number of fire ladies with him, 
So when King Arthur saw him, he sighed, Welcome, my sister's son, I wend ye had been dead. And now I see that, and now I see thee on live, much am I beholden unto Almighty Jesu. Ah, fire nephew, what been these laddies that hither be come with you? Sir, sighed Sir Gawain, all these be laddies for whom I have fochten for, when I was man living. And all these are though that I did batile for in righteous quarrels. For God hath given him that grass at their great prior, because I did batile for them, for their reeked, that they should bring me hither unto you. Thus much hath given me leave God, for to warn you of your death, for an ye feeked as to mourn with Sir Mordred as ye have both assigned, doubt ye not, ye shall be slain, and the most party of your people on both parties. And for the great grace and goodness that Almighty Jesu hath unto you, and for pity of you, and many more other good men there shall be slain, God hath sent me to you of his special grace to give you warning that in no wise ye do batile as to mourn, but that ye take a treatise for a month die, and proffer you largely, so that to mourn ye put in a delay, and within a month shall come Sir Launcelot with all his noble knictis, and rescue you worshipfully, and slay Sir Mordred, and all that ever will hold with him. <laughs> Carrie is theorizing that perhaps Gawain has converted to a religion with a different heaven. Um, no, not exactly. Um, and keep in mind, we're not seeing here Gawain's ultimate destiny, right? This is not a vision of Gawain in heaven, exactly, right? What he says is that he has been given grace. He's been given a special grace to come warn King Arthur, right? That's the favor that he's been granted, and he has been granted that favor because of these ladies. Now, some of you may be Recalling, I, I know I was thinking of it when we were, after all of our earlier discussions, when we got to this passage, that there are these ladies, right, that he fought for in righteous quarrel, uh, who have been praying for him. And I was tempted to ask, uh, where, are all the, where, where, where are the ladies that he beheaded, <laughs> right? Uh, there's a bunch of ladies whose death he caused. Uh, are they on the, are they, are, have they written a minority report here? You know, like, how does that work? Um, but, um, but again, notice this, it's not about him, right? It's about them. All these be for whom I have fucked in for, right? All the ones that he did battle for. And God hath given him that grace. So God has given grace to these ladies, not to Gawain. He's given grace to the ladies at their great prayer that they shall bring me hither unto you. So they were praying that they would be allowed to bring Gawain to Arthur, right? So it's their prayers that God is granting, right? So this is not Gawain being rewarded with ladies in the afterlife. This is not Gawain, um, Gawain's heart being weighed, right? And uh, finding whether or not he was did more righteous quarrels uh, than he did uh, murders and stabbings in the back. 
uh, and finding that he has a net balance to his credit, that that's not what's happening here, right? Um, what we do know is that the prayers of people work. Um, that is something that we have seen has already been suggested. Uh, uh, and of course is, is part of doctrine anyway. Um, and it's the prayers of these. Ma- so it, it again, it's not that all of his misdeeds have been wiped out. What is emphasized is that these ladies who have been praying for him, their prayers have been heard. So what conclusion do we draw from this? Again, that like, it's all good for Gawain. Gawain is given, and we're given at least a glimpse, possibly, that Gawain has come to a good end, too. And uh, somebody was asking, is this connected with his, you know, rep- did his repentance before lead to this? Yeah, his repentance before led to this, I think, certainly. Um, uh, but again, that's not explicitly the way that that is contextualized here, Right. He doesn't come and say, I was on balance a pretty bad night, but I saw the errors of my ways and repented prior to my death. That's not what he says, right? He doesn't say, yeah, I was bad to a bunch of ladies, but I was good to a bunch of others. And so in the end, you know, net positive. He doesn't say that either, right? He just says that these ladies have been, their prayer has been granted and their prayer was that he should be able to warn Arthur. They're praying for Arthur. And they're praying for Gawain, right? This blessing has been given to him because people are praying for him. I think the conclusion that we're supposed to draw from this is, see, this is how chivalry is supposed to work, right? This is like, this is the system working, right? Even for Gawain, even Gawain was a pretty crappy knight most of the time, right? But not all of the time. Even Gawain, who is only a good knight some of the time, did good when he was being a good knight during that time, right? And we can see the fruit that is born by faithful knighthood, even when it's only occasionally practiced by a pretty bad knight, right? I don't think this is Mallory whitewashing Gawain, right? That this is him just trying to convince us that, uh, you know, forget about all the bad stuff that Gawain did, um... I don't think it's about that. This isn't about his salvation, I don't think. Um, but this does show the fruit of good knighthood, right? Um, and also the one, um, the one other sort of virtue that Gawain had, which was faithfulness to Arthur, right? You could debate that, I suppose. But he, uh, you know, he was... And it's not saying that he always led Arthur aright, of course. Um, But uh, he did stick with him. Um, Yes, James is recalling, of course, his repeated asking of Lancelot to pray at his tomb, right? To visit his tomb and to pray for him, either more or less, right? I, I... I love that. No, it's my favorite phrase in his letter, right? Pray for me either. either You can pray a lot or at least a little bit, right? Um, yes, yes. The prayers of Lancelot should help him, should help Gawain. Absolutely they should. Especially since the last wrongdoing of which Gawain is repenting was against Lancelot, right? So that would be especially good. Um, 
Yeah, Carrie, I do like the idea that Arthur took Gawain's bad advice all of his life. Uh, and so Gawain is also, in a sense, uh, uh, atoning, right, for leading Arthur astray by being the one to deliver the message that can save him. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's important. I think that works really well here. But, of course, it's not to be. Arthur is going to follow his advice, right? He's not going to ignore it. And Mordred seems keen to avoid the battle, too. That seems to be purely practical. We don't get any sense that Mordred has had uh, some kind of revelation of imminent disaster, right, Uh, uh, for that day's battle. Rather, it seems to be mere prudence on Mordred's part in the sense that he... um, has already been beaten by Arthur once. He has the superior army, we're told, but again, Arthur beat him when they landed at Dover, so, you know, is he going to be able to win? It's got to at least be in doubt from Mordred's part. Now, you might ask, is more, isn't is Mordred smart enough to figure this out, the same thing that Gawain just revealed, right, that give Lancelot a month and he'll probably be here with all of his armies, and how is Mordred going to hope to fight against Arthur uh, and Lancelot too, wouldn't it be in Mordred's best interest to pursue this battle, right, even if it's risky, so that he can defeat Arthur's army now and then maybe have a chance of defeating Lancelot's later on? Not necessarily. One of the things that um, Mordred does in many of the earlier texts, many of Mallory's sources is he heavily recruits, he brings in a lot of mercenaries, like Picts and Scots and uh, 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 folks like that. Um, from among, that is to say, the, 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 out, the, the outlandish nations, right, that still surround Logres um, uh, from the traditional enemies uh, of Britain. Um, so... That Mordred, given more time, is going to be able to rally even larger armies is also, I think, a possibility. But it's interesting, I think, that Mordred is also keen for the delay. Um, Yeah. So, we're going to parley, right? We're going to follow Gawain's advice. Everything's going to be fine. And when King Arthur shall depart, he warned all his host that and they see any swear drawn, look ye come on fiercely, and slay that traitor, Sir Mordred, for I in no wise trust him. In likewise, Sir Mordred warned his host, that and ye see any manner of swear drawn, look that ye come on fiercely, and so slay all that ever before you standeth, for in no wise I will not trust for this treatise. And in the samwise, sighed Sir Mordred unto his host, for I know well my father will be avenged upon me. Neither one of them trusts the other. Everybody is ready, should a single sword be drawn. And so they met, as their appointment was, and all were agreed and accorded thoroughly. And wine was fet, and they drank together. Right so come out an adder of a little heath-bush, and hit, and hit stang a kneeked in the foot. And so, when the kneeked felt him so stung, he looked down and saw the adder, and anon he drew his swear to slay the adder, and thought none other harm. 
and when the oast on both parties saw that swear drawin, then they blew beamers, trumpetus and hornis, and shouted grimly, and both oasts dressed him to getters, and King Arthur took his horse and sighed, Alas, this unhappy die, and so rode to his party, and Sir Mordred in likewise. Okay, so... An ill fate is on them this day, right? And despite the fact that both sides are trying to avoid the battle, battle is nevertheless joined on this unhappy day. That word is an interesting one, right? An important one that we've seen. Um, and yeah, Devora and Arthur, I agree. The fact that it's a snake, it's hard to avoid that one. Um, it does seem uh, hard to imagine that there is no implication of malevolent influence here, right? Um, I don't think, well, my only question is, how allegorical is this, right? The, Let me explain what I mean by that. I don't mean is there symbolism being used. I mean is it allegory or not. Um, modern people are bad at allegory, or at least they they don't enjoy being as thorough about allegory as people in the, in the Middle Ages do. So uh, to give the classic example, uh, for me anyway, what is the classic example of modern people being clumsy with allegory are... All the modern readers who insist on using the word allegory to describe what the Chronicles of Narnia are, right? The Chronicles of Narnia are not an allegory, um, not in the medieval sense, not in the traditional sense of an allegory. If it were an allegory, um, then you would not only have the Aslan-Christ parallel, uh, but you would have more, right? Like that Peter would represent something, and Lucy would represent something, and Edmund would re would represent something, like a, a, something in particular. If Edmund is like every man who is redeemed by the uh, by the sacrifice of of Christ, then who's Peter? Who's Susan? Who's Lucy? Right? Who's Mister Beaver? Like, if it's an allegory, they all would have some meaning, and it would all fit together, right? Um, it doesn't. It's not an allegory. Um, are there connections? Obviously, right? Is, is, is are there? Uh, you know, is he is is Lewis establishing a parallel? Clearly. So, is the adder symbolic? Right? Is the snake supposed to make us think of the snake in Genesis? Yes, but is it an allegory? I don't think so. Um, because it doesn't make any sense to me. The, the, the killing of this, he manages to... Uh, well, we're not told that here that he manages to kill the snake. He draws his sword in order to kill the snake, right? But even that is actually kind of, an, kind of awkward allegorically, right? If the snake represents the devil, then in what sense then, like, who is the knight raising his sword against the... Then now what? Is he, like, St. Michael fighting the devil, right? In which But that precipitates the thing. It doesn't work. So I, 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 I don't... I don't think um, we're supposed to do this allegorically. Why am I even asking this question, you might ask? Because when you see a snake like this, 
it's got to raise the flag, right? You've got to at least ask the question. Um, this is how you know in the Middle Ages, like, are you in the presence of allegory, right? Sometimes somebody's name will kind of throw up the flag, sometimes in a, a particular event that's really hard to get away from. And certainly the presence of the snake is, uh, uh, is, is definitely uh, part of that. Um, yeah, and Arthur, I know in Judaism, the snake is just a snake. Uh, in medieval Christianity, it is absolutely the devil. Like there's, that's not even a, that's not even a question. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, Arthur, no, if there were no snake, I don't think Mordred would have found another excuse to break the peace. Uh, it's, it's, um, he wants peace too. He, he is, he is just, he is untrusting. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, he he is untrusting and and uh, uh, you know quick to respond, but he wants to not fight this day. Also, um, anyway, yeah. Um, no, Robert, I don't know exactly what a what a biom is. So it. As far as I can see, they're basically drawing trumpets, trumpets, and also trumpets, right? Uh, what is the distinction there? Are there like three different kinds of instruments? Would that have meant something exactly? Like that, you know, what? I, I, I don't know. I, that, that uh, I admit that that catalog there defeats me uh, because those are all kind of synonyms. Uh, so I, I don't know why they're blowing all three of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Brian, I agree that we should be remembering the serpents and worms involved in Arthur's dream, right? Um, that's another reason, by the way, that I feel strongly inclined to resist trying to do a Christian allegory, like, cause you can almost do it, right? I mean, you can kind of, if you squint at it, you can start doing it, thinking about the fall of Arthur and comparing with the serpent, right? We should be thinking about the fall of Adam and Eve, right? So, and certainly it, it, there's a kind of parallel here, right? Just as Adam and Eve are in Eden and then are kicked out of Eden, um, so the, you know, the, we've got the Arthurian world, which is the parallel to Eden and the modern world as, you know, the land outside. And there's a, you know, um, cherubim with a flaming sword preventing us from going back. You, it, it almost works, right? You can kind of do it. Um, but Brian, I think it is the memory of that dream that makes me less certain, Right. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, I, I don't, um, because in the dream, right, the serpents are the things that are tearing him apart. The serpents are, seem to be instruments, not of sin, but merely of chaos, right? Especially since they're sea serpents, Right. It's a horrible black sea that he's falling into um, off of the wheel. Um, so. I don't see this as a. Besides, anyway, it's kind of 
it's not clearly a moral fall anyhow. So we can get a kind of the serpent may suggest a kind of a vague parallel with the with the the expulsion from Eden, right? But but it's awkward. Uh, and whenever I look at it again, I say if you squint, it kind of works. But whenever I look at it more closely, it seems to uh, it seems to fall apart. Um, I agree, I agree, Carrie. It might seem like it would have been had the goal of both of them been to ensure peace. Maybe not only just saying, "Okay, guys, now don't draw your sword," and I mean it. Maybe it would have been better for if they had maybe everybody had left their swords behind right when they came to the parley. I agree, but that I think is part of the point, Carrie. Right? You'll notice that both sides spend a good deal more time saying, "If they betray us, attack." than they do saying, make sure you don't draw a sword, <laughs> right? Um, so the, the the way that both of them are encouraging their followers, should any sword be drawn to attack and ask questions later, that's really what leads to this, right? Um, neither one of them trusts the other. And that, I think, that by itself, Carrie, sort of shows us it, it doesn't matter. Even if Arthur survives the day, it's de- the old world is gone, right? We've already, the serpents are already here pulling Arthur apart, right? We're, this is already the modern world, the world of newfangledness, the world of, um, you know, the degradation of, of chivalry, right? It's, it's, they can't even have a, an honorable parley, right? Neither side is willing to be trusting at all. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe beam is our bugles without valve mechanisms. Possibly. But if so, why do you have both? And do they have different jobs? I don't know. I kind of want to know, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, David was suggesting that. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I'm a trumpet player. At least I was. I haven't played trumpet in many years, but I was a trumpet player for a long time. Uh, so I know the difference between a trumpet and a bugle, but uh, but what I don't know is the significance in this context and why all three of them are being blown at this, at this point. Um, what are their... What are their roles? Because this is clearly not a brass quartet breaking out here. Anyway. Um, so. Everybody dies. Right. Uh, the battlefield is littered with the dead and dying. Uh, Arthur is one of three men left alive on his side and Mordred alone survives on the other, right? So we have almost a hundred percent casualty rate so far here in this battle. And Arthur spies Mordred. Now give me my spear, sighed King Arthur unto Sir Lucan, for yonder I have espied the traitor that all this woe hath rocked. Sir, let him be, said Sir Lucan, for he is unhappy. And if ye pass this unhappy day, ye shall be wreaked well revenged. And, good Lord, remember ye of your nicht's dream, and what the spirit of Sir Gawain told you to nicht, that ye, and yet God of his great goodness hath persevered, hath preserved you, sorry, hitherto. 
And for God's sake, my lord, leave of this, for blessed be God, ye have won the field, for yet we been here three on life, and with Sir Mordred is not on on life. And therefore, if ye leave off now, this wicked die of destiny is past. Now tide me death, tide me life, said the king. Now I see him yonder alone, he shall never escape mine hondas, for at a better avile shall I never have him. God speed you will, sighed Sir Bedivere. Then the king got his spear in both his hondas and ran toward Sir Mordred, crying and sighing, Traitor, now is thy death day come. And when Sir Mordred saw King Arthur, he ran until him with his swear drawn in his hond, and there King Arthur smote Sir Mordred under the shield with a foin of his spear throughout the body more than a fathom. And when Sir Mordred felt that he had his death's wound, he thrust himself with the meek that he had up to the burr of, the, of King Arthur's spear, and reached so he smote his father, King Arthur, with his sword, holding in both his hondas upon the side of the head, that the sword pierced the helmet and the, and, and the tray of the brine. And therewith Mordred dashed down stark dead to the earth. And yes, Devorah, you're right. One last time, Arthur doesn't know when now is now. Um, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Karita says, not one to take good advice. Up to this point, Arthur decides not to start now. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I'm not sure. That is, I'm not sure... And I've never felt quite certain about this. I feel quite certain about how to take Lancelot and Guinevere's deaths. I don't feel certain how to take Arthur's death. Arthur's death is tied up with this whole collapse, right? Society around him is collapsing. We see it in the support for Mordred. We get this very stark picture of it in Arthur's dream. There's no, there's no good outcome, right? It's, it's, it's already done. So when Sir Luke and the butler says to him, hey, you know what? We won, right? There are three of us and one of him. So we've only had like 97% casualties and he's had 99. Let him live. Let's go away. And then Lancelot will come and everything will be fine. There could still be a good ending here, right? But that's not true. There can't be a good ending here. Um, his dream, that prophetic dream that he had, the Wheel of Fortune dream, that's happening. It's going to happen, right? It's already happened. The battle itself is that. Remember the serpents pulling him apart, right? He's already been pulled apart. The army that he's fighting are his own barons, right? These are his own people who should be supporting him. His body is already torn in pieces, right? Um, Lucan says, notice the repetition of unhappy, right? We got unhappy 
We've got unhappiness, right? Alas, Arthur said, unless this, alas, this unhappy day. And we get it repeated. Let him be, says Sir Lucan, because he, Mordred, is unhappy. It doesn't mean like, you know, let him go because he looks like he's kind of sad, right? Uh, no, that's not what it means, of course. He is, Mordred, is unhappy, unfortunate, right? Unlucky. Ill-fated. Exactly, David. He is, Mordred is an ill fate, right? If you go to him, you're going to ill fate, right? You're seeking out ill fate. Uh, Mordred isn't just unhappy. Mordred is like unhappiness, right? Um, And this day has been the day of unhap, the day of misfortune, the day of tragedy, the day of destiny, the day of disaster. Um, And Mordred is that disaster, right? Uh, He is the embodiment of that disaster. He is the, uh, the, the center, the symbol of this, this degradation, this collapse, this decline of the court into the poor, sad, pitiful modern world that Mallory knows and, um, is not hugely a fan of from his prison cell. Um, Arthur won't listen. And again, it's easy to maintain. He's being pretty dumb here, right? Lucan seems kind of right. If he just goes away with Sir Lucan and Sir Bedivere and, 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 and gets away, then he'll be fine, right? And it could still have a happy ending, as I said, but it can't. It really can't. Um, if ye pass this unhappy day, ye shall be raked well revenged. Well, maybe he could be revenged, but nothing better than that is going to happen. Um, Arthur is meeting his destiny here. And here it's kind of hard for me not to remember all those conversations we had about Merlin back in the old days, right? Back in the early days before Merlin was entombed in a rock. Merlin kept predicting what was going to happen. And Arthur has seemed not to care most of the time, right? I mean, Mordred has been here in the court all along, openly, and not under any false pretenses either. Everybody knows who Mordred is. Mordred is Arthur's half-son, right? Uh, Incestuous son. Everybody knows this. Arthur knows this. Everybody knows this, and yet he, there's this sense of destiny, right? Arthur still leaves Mordred in charge of the kingdom. The guy whom Merlin told him and told him is going to betray him and bring about the destruction of the court. And yet he, so Arthur's attacking Mordred here and receiving his head wound, right? Receiving his mortal wound. What else could he have done? He couldn't have done anything else, I don't think. Um, there's, did I call him his half-son? That's not quite what I meant. He's fully his son. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Half-brother of Gawain. Uh, uh, entirely, uh, entirely a mess. Um, yeah. Um, 
Brian says Arthur is, in the end, deciding to take the adventure that God will give him. Yes. And I, and, and I think he knows what that adventure is, right? Um, Lucan holds out the prospect. If you pass this unhappy day, right? If you pass this unhappy day. And Arthur is saying, I'm not supposed to pass this unhappy day, right? This is what's supposed to happen. Um, so is Arthur being stubborn? Is he being bullheaded? Is he making the wrong choice? I think so. Yeah, half son, half nephew is kind of what I think I was thinking there, Jennifer. Yeah. Um, is he is he making the wrong choice? Yeah, kind of. He is. Um, it's again, it's easy to say that. It's easy to see that, but but I don't think that's the whole story here, right? Um, in a sense, Brian, I think he's even going beyond taking the adventure that God will give him, and he is fulfilling the destiny that he knows lies before him. Right, he he tried once with the killing of the ma- of the male children. Right, um, the recapitulation of the uh, the murder of the innocents. He tried once to uh, undo destiny. Right, to uh, uh, fend that off. He's not going to try that anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen, so far as we know, Merlin is still hanging out under the rock. We, 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 we have no indication that Merlin is dead, though we've stopped visiting him, apparently. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so again, Brian, it's taking the adventure that God will send him is, is uh, that's well remembered. But again, I think Arthur's even sort of past that. Um, so Bedivere uh, is going to throw the sword, fakes throwing the sword twice because it seems like a terrible waste of a really good sword. Found Sir, Be- Sir-, Sir Bedivere departed and went to the sword and leakly took it up. And so he went unto the water's side, and there he bound the girdle about the hiltes and threw the sword as far into the water as he meeked. And there came an arm and an hand above the water, and took it, and clicked it, and shook it thrice, and brandished it, and then vanished with the sword into the water. So Sir Bedivere come again to the king, and told him what he saw. Alas, said the king, help me hence, for I dread me I have tarried over long. Then Sir Bedwyr took the king upon his back, and so went with him to the water's side. And when they were there, even fast by the bank, hoved a little barge, with many fire laddies in it, and among him all was a queen, and all they had black hoodies, and all they wept and shrieked when they saw King Arthur. Now put me into that barge, sighed the king. And so he did softly, and there received him three laddies with great mourning, and so they set him down. And in one of their lapis, King Arthur lied his head, and thon the queen sighed, Ah, my dear brother, why have ye tarried so long from me? Alas, this wound on your head hath cocked over much cold. And anon they rowed fromward the land, and Sir Bedivere beheld all those laddies go froward him, 
Then Sir Bedwyr cried and sighed, Ah, my lord Arthur, what shall become of me? Now ye go from me, and leave me here alone among mine enemies. Comfort thyself, said the king, and do as well as thou mayst, for in me is no trust for to trust in. For I must into the vale of Avalon to heal me of my grievous wound, and if thou hear never more of me, pray for my soul. I have no idea what's happening here. I mean, okay, I do. He's being taken away to Avalon, and that's all good. He's returned the sword, and he's going back to Avalon. What is Morgan Le Fay doing here, as this certainly seems to be Morgan Le Fay, right? And she's like, oh, hey, brother, why have you tarried for so long? Answer, because you've been trying to kill me and destroy my kingdom? Why should I go hang out with you, right? And yet he does that here at the end. I really don't know how we're supposed to take this. Um, and this is where, in the end... Um, so you know how I've been talking about how I would really love the story of, like, the women and what's going on behind the scenes, right? This feminine world that is cl that clearly exists, right? Which, you know, where we have this sort of parallel feminine plot that uh, goes, that weaves through and underlies a lot of these uh, much more purely masculine stories that Mallory is telling. Um, anyway, um, I would really like to know what's really up with the women. And this is the payoff. Right. This would be the payoff to know what on earth Morgan Le Fay is doing and why the sorceresses are taking him away uh, to Avalon. How this is. How are we supposed to take this exactly? I mean, that Arthur is being taken away, that he is seeking healing, that he is going into this other world. He's not alone. Right. Sir Peleus, who married uh, Nimue, who was the one who locked uh, um, Merlin up in a rock. She was not into Merlin, but she was into Sir Peleus, and she takes him away and protects him. That seems to work out really well. Uh, you know, it's um, uh, that, you know, that seems like a fine and, and uh, 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 fruitful, uh, well-adjusted relationship between the two of them. But what's going on with Morgan here? We have had um, all along this uncertainty about the ladies of the lake, right? You know, we have Morgan Le Fay, who is connected to the Fay, right? Who's connected to the fairies. We've had, um, remember, Lynette uh, and her ability to take gobbets of flesh and reassemble them into a living knight, right? We've had, uh, she can do that, I guess, but, she, you know, a cold head wound you can't do. Um, anyway, she, uh, you know, so we've had Morgan Le Fay and her obvious malice towards Arthur, and yet maybe not. Um, we've had the nigromancy that has been studied by the sorceresses at certain disreputable or perhaps highly reputable, depending on your point of view, uh, nunneries, um, uh, you know, how this all comes together, that, that this whole world, this whole feminine world, especially 
is a complete mystery in Mallory, and he seems perfectly content to leave it mysterious. But the thing that I don't understand and, and wish I did understand, what does Arthur entering that world mean to Mallory? What, how are we supposed to take this departure of Arthur's? Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, nor do I even know what it means that she's Morgan Le Fay. Nor do I know even what it means that this is Avalon, right? Sir Gareth lived in Avalon, too, you know, and was marrying into Avalon, apparently. Remember when we discovered that, oh, by the way, they're in Avalon now? Um, is Avalon fairy or is it not fairy? Again, these things, Mallory seems content to, like, just leave, right? Um, so it's not just the role of women, really the role of, 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 of fairy, right? And of the other world in this story is very tantalizing. And I don't feel that, um, he, he doesn't, I don't think it's just clumsiness, right? I don't think that this is just Mallory doing a bad job telling a story, uh, uh, telling a fairy story, right? Um, I think that he is the infrequency and uncertainty of his d descriptions here. The strange, like, are there boundaries? Is Avalon even a fairy place? Um, are we sure about that? I think that it's it's part of the plan. I just wish I understood the plan a little bit better. Um, but anyway, Arthur... One thing that I think is really clear and really clearly important, Arthur doesn't die on the battlefield, right? Um, the unhappy day does not just end with King Arthur bleeding out. Um, the Arthurian world is dying. Arthur is being cast into the sea and torn apart. But remember, he wakes up before he's actually ripped to pieces. His limbs are all seized by the serpents, and then he awakes, right? Um it's clearly important whether we're uncomfortable about it, whether, you know, no matter what we feel about where he's going and in whose company he's going with, he doesn't just drop dead. He does not suffer the fate of Luke and the Butler, right? Who failed to point out his enormous abdominal wound um, while they were all moving Arthur's body. And then as soon as he puts Arthur's body down, his guts spill out onto the ground and he keels over dead. Right. We don't get any ending like that for Arthur. Uh, uh, Mordred dashed down Stark dead. Right. We don't get that um, for Arthur either. And I think that that, that that is clearly important. Right. So. The world is changing, right? The old world is past. The modern world has come. The world of newfangleness. Arthur has come down off the wheel and been plunged into the, the horrible dark seas with the serpents and the worms. And yet, and yet, we don't get any clear finality on that. And that, I think, is clearly important as we see uh, in the tale of his probable death, Bedweer meet, comes to this abbey where he sees this new tomb, right? And is told that these ladies brought this dude and had him buried here, but he doesn't know for sure who they were or he was. All we get is hearsay, 
right, about the burial of Arthur here. Thus of Arthur I find no more written in bokes that been auctorized, nother more of the very certainty of his death hard I never read, and but thus was he laid away in a ship wherein were three queenes, that one was King Arthur's sister, Queen Morgan le Fay, the t'other was the Queen of North Gallus, and the third was the Queen of the Westlanders. And there was Dame Nineveh, the chief laddie of the lock which had ledded Sir Pallias the good Kneeked, and this laddie had done much for King Arthur. And this Dame Nineveh would never suffer Sir Pellias to be in no place where he hold be in danger of his life, and so he lived unto the uttermost of his dies with her in great rest. Now, now more the death of Arthur could I never find, but that these laddies brought him to his grave, and such on was interred there, which the eremit bar witness that sometime was Bishop of Canterbury, and yet the eremit knew not in certain that he was verily the body of King Arthur. For this tal Sir Bedwyr, a knight of the table ruined, mad hit to be written. Notice the continuing emphasis. It's just hearsay, right? The Bishop of Canterbury didn't know, right? They did not autopsy the body. They are not certain that it was verily the body of King Arthur. Somebody was buried there. There's definitely a grave. Um, and there's definitely somebody in it, but we're not 100% sure that it was King Arthur. Yet some men sigh in many parties of England that King Arthur is not dead, but had by the will of our Lord Jesu into another plus. And men sigh that he shall come again, and he shall win the holy cross. Yet I will not sigh that it shall be so, but rather I would sigh. Here in this world he challenged his life. And many men sigh that there is written upon the tomb thus. Hic jacet Arturus, rex quondam rexque futurus. Here lies Arthur the once and future king. Brian, yes. Uh, when he says that some books are auctorized, uh, is he choosing not to trust some of his sources? Yes, that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, he's not saying that you can't find other versions of this written anywhere. He's just saying that uh, of the authorized sources, of the reputable sources. Now, notice he gives no qualification for the authorization uh, of those particular sources, right? Um, which ones is he deeming authoritative and which ones is he not? Um, he gives no premises there, right? Um Where is Mallory coming down? He insists on the lack of very certainty, right? The lack of 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 veritable of truthful certainty, right? Um he's never read that in any authorized book. You can't be sure that Arthur's dead. From within the world of the story, right? The Bishop of Canterbury and Bedwyr, neither one of them can be sure 
that Arthur, it was Arthur's body that was buried. Um, he says that there is a legend, right? Some men say that England, that Arthur is not dead and that he will come again and shall win the Holy Cross. He's going to come back and go on crusade. But then it's that next sentence that I find most tantalizing. The whole thing almost sounds like Mallory wants to insist that Arthur is going to come back, right? That he wants to leave that open. Rex quondam, Rex que futurus. He will be the king again in the future. Um, but then there's that one sentence. Yet I will not sigh that it shall be so, but rather I will sigh. Here in this world, he challenged his life. What does that mean? He says, this is what I say. He's not saying this is what it says in the authorized sources. He's not saying this is what most people believe. He's, he, he's, he's given us what was given in the authorized sources, right? That he's probably dead, but you can't prove it. He's said what many people believe, that he's going to come back. And then he says his own opinion. Rather, I would say, this is what I would say. So what's his big opinion? That in this world, he challenged his life. And I don't know what he means by that. Um, that I find here in this world he challenged his life is to me one of the most sort of mind-blowingly tantalizing sentences in this entire book. I don't know what that means. I don't know what Mallory's getting at there exactly. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I don't know what to do with it. I can do a bunch of things with it. Right. And of course, I can't help but think of like what C.S. Lewis did with it, for instance, in Paralandra, but uh, and that hideous strength. But I don't know that that's what Mallory is thinking of here. Um, here in this world, he challenged his life. Uh, Brian suggests uh, that Mallory suggests that Arthur remains in this world in some form of life, but he's not willing to say that he's going to come back in any recognizable form. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, I, of course, can't... That word changed. I can't help but think of um, St. Paul. I can't help but think of 1 Corinthians 15. We shall... Uh, that 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 verse, uh, the infant's verse, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Um, I... <sighs> We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, says Paul in the King James translation. Um, he's talking about resurrection. He's talking about the, the he's talking about bodily resurrection and the new life. Uh, is that what he's implying happened to Arthur? Right, that he didn't like whether or not he died. I don't know, but he's been. So has he been resurrected in some sense? Is he? 
I, I, I don't know. I, 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 are we supposed to be thinking that? But changed his life. That's what it makes me think of. I'm not sure what else I'm supposed to think of. Um, he's not just living in Avalon because Sir Pelias is living. Look at how he's just recalled the story of Sir Pelias to us, right? Who went to live in Avalon with Nynaeve, right? Uh, who, whom he married. And they lived happily ever after unto the uttermost of his dies. So he grew to be an old man and then died, kind of like you do, right? But that's apparently not what Arthur did, because he changed his life, right? His life is now different. So it's not just, you know, ha now has an Avalon forwarding address. Um I I don't know. I don't know what he's suggesting about Arthur, and I'm not sure what it means other than he seems to want to take that ideal and not just promise that it's going to come back in the future. Um, the fact that he refers to the changing of the life suggests to me that the prophecy... The prophecies are kind of exciting, right? The whole once-in-future king thing is is an exciting idea... But to Mallory, it seems not to be enough, right? Um, it's not enough to say that old world is gone, but it's not gone forever. Someday it'll come back. He doesn't, he doesn't endorse the legends and the rumors that he'll come again, that he is the future king as well as the, 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 the once king, right? Um, Instead, he says that he changed. That old world has been transformed in some way. Is it still in wait? Is it still going to come? If it does come, it is. And Brian here, as I certainly agree with that, it may come in a different form, right? It may look totally different. Um, is it only a foretaste and foreshadowing of heaven itself? And, you know, the 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 resurrection, you know, the, the after the resurrection of the dead, right? Um, perhaps so. Um, but, um, yeah, that, that is interesting. Uh, Dola Stroke points out that uh, someone once pointed out that Arthur is always preferring to spend his time with his knights rather than with ladies, including the queen, but ends with a woman in a boat in the land of the Lady of the Lake. So he, he, he has lived in this very masculine world and he ends up being taken into that feminine world, right? And Lancelot, who always likes the ladies, ends up surrounded by his male kin. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure what to do with that either, but that is an interesting correlation. Um, yeah. If we understand Arthur symbolically in some way, I think that Mallory is suggesting the transformation. So again, that you can't turn back the clock, right? Um, modern people are never going to be again like people were in the old days. The old days aren't just going to happen again. But a transformation, a resurrection. Um, 
into a whole new body? Is there some, is he giving some kind of very brief and indirect vision of a future perfection? Right. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, like I say, I find that sentence extremely tantalizing as of course, many others have as well. But let's get back to Guinevere and Lancelot because it's late. Juan and Juan Guinevere, Juan Queen Guinevere, understood that King Arthur was dead, and all the noble Canictus, Sir Mordred, and all the Remenout. Then she stole away with five laddies with her, and so she went to Amesbury, and there she let mock herself a nun, and wearied wicked clothes and black, and great penance she took upon her, as ever did sinful woman in this land, and never creature could mock her murray. But ever she lived in fasting, prayers, and almas deeds, that all manner of people marvelled how virtuously she was challenged. Guinevere repents, right? Guinevere changes. In great, she takes upon herself great penance. This is not Guinevere seeking refuge or asylum in a nunnery. Right. She lets make herself a nun, um, not because she's got nowhere else to go, not because she wants to be kept safe uh, and to make sure that nobody else who's going to try to make himself king is going to try to marry her by force again. She lets herself be made a nun. She lets make herself a nun out of great penance, as ever did sinful woman in this land. Guinevere's repentance, we are told, is firm and remarkable. Fasting prayers and all misdeeds that all manner of people marveled how virtuously she was challenged. She now gets it. David says she changed her life too. Yeah, yeah, she really does. Um, she really does. Um, This is Guinevere's end. She's not going to have a romantic happily ever after with Lancelot now that her husband is finally out of the way, right? Her response to her husband's death, she's now a free agent, right? She could go to Lancelot if she wants to. It is not to do that. It is to repent and dedicate the rest of her life to acts of penance. This is a confession of guilt by her. Of what exactly? Let's see. So Lancelot and Guinevere meet for the last time. He finds her and comes before her. Fan Sir Lancelot was brought before her, than the queen's side to all those laddies. And she's become a leader, right? She's become the abbess of her abbey now. Um, and so she's now instructing the other nuns. Through this some man and me, hath all this war be rocked, and the death of the most noblest connectors of the world, for through our love that we have loved together, is my most noble lord slain. Therefore, Sir Launcelot, wit you well I am set in such a plate to get my soul hail. And yet I trust 
through God is grass, and through his passion of his wound is wide, that after my death I may have a seat of the blessed fast of Christ Jesu, and on Dumas die to sit on his reaped side, for as sinful as ever I was, now our saint is in heaven. And therefore, Sir Launcelot, I require thee and beseech thee heartily for all the love that ever was betwixt us, that thou never see me no more in the visage. And I command thee on God's behalf that thou forsake my company. And to thy kingdom look thou turn again, and keep well thy realm from war and wrack, for as well as I have loved thee heretofore, mine heart will not serve now to see thee, for through thee and me is the floor of kinges and knictes destroyed, and therefore go thou to my realm, and talk, and there talk ye a wife, and live with her with joy and bliss." And I pray thee heartily to pray for me to the everlasting Lord that I may amend my misliving. Now, my sweet madam, sighed Sir Launcelot, wold ye that I shall turn again unto my country and there to wed a laddie? Nay, madam, wit you well that shall I never do, for I shall never be so false unto you of that I have promised it. But the self-destiny that ye have taken you to, I will talk me to, for the pleasure of Jesu, and ever for you I cast me specially to pray. Ah, Sir Launcelot, if ye will do so, and hold thy promise, but I may never believe you, said the queen, but that ye will turn to the world again. Here we see what she repented of. Here we see she now has a clearer vision than Lancelot did. Lancelot has gone through repentance before, right? He repented and did penance in the quest for the Holy Grail. He saw that his love of the queen was sinful. What he did not see is its consequence. In the quest for the Holy Grail, he was focused on his personal salvation, right? On his personal holiness. His love for the queen needed to be repented of. He needed to set that aside. He was supposed to not see her again. He was supposed to give her up so that he could achieve holiness, right? So that he could do what is right for his soul. She sees more. She sees that, certainly. And she is much more resolute than he is. But she sees the big picture here, right? We have caused it. This is our fault. Remember all those times that we saw Lancelot manipulating justice, right? How... They were in the wrong, but they were technically in the right, right? Um, how he kept trying to escape by the letter of the law. And here is Guinevere cutting through all of that. Because Lancelot can still say, except for that one little incident, right, that he did right. 
he rescued the queen. He killed Gareth and Gaharis by accident, right? It happens. It was a tragedy. But, um, and unfortunate, of course, obviously, with the Gawain issue, but he took the queen away to save her life. He kept her safe, and he gave her back when, when the king agreed not to kill her, right? And then he left and didn't do, and you know, and sought no, you know, he, he could still be like, I, I, I did everything right. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault, right? He could still say that. And she says, you know what? All of this is, that's, that's just legalism, right? We did cause this. This is our fault. The division in the kingdom would never have happened had we, in fact, not seen each other, right? And are they guilty? You know, were they, have they been sleeping together? Were they, that doesn't even, at the end of the day, that doesn't even matter. You know, the question of, 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 you know, were they or were they not sleeping together? She sees in the end, it doesn't matter. They, by their pride, by their persistence in their love together, by their putting their love above all these other things, right? In the end, Arthur was right and they were wrong. Arthur valued the fellowship of the knights, right? He valued that kingdom, that old world, right? Which is now gone, which has now been destroyed almost completely. That's what he valued, right? He achieved his perfect happiness when the round table was complete and they were there on the morning before the quest for the Holy Grail, right? Um, and in the end, she says, he was right. We were wrong. We valued ourselves. We valued our love. We didn't do any of that. Um, and yes, Brian, you are absolutely right. Her suggestion that Lancelot go get married suggests that she does not think he's going to take responsibility in the same way. Right? Of course, her telling him to go get married is also a way of telling him no, look, really, I've changed. She's been the jealous one, right? She has been the one who has been really touchy if ever he might be interested in anybody else. You know, and now she's like, no, go get married. In fact, find some other chick named Elaine and marry her, right? That's totally what you should do, right? Um, she's over it is one of the things that she's saying there. But I agree she is also suggesting he's... He just said... I'm going to, the same destiny that you've taken yourself to, I'm going to take myself to as well. Right? You've, you've taken orders and you've become an, I'm going to take orders too. I'm going to give up everything. I'm going to give up the world just like you have. And she says, baloney, you said you would do that before and you didn't. Right? Um, and when he says that, he says, the self-destiny ye of talking you to, I will talk me to for the pleasure of Jesu, right? I'm going to do it for Christ's sake, totally for Christ's sake, and not, not as a courtly lover, right? Since you've done this, I'm going to do this too, because you're my lady and I'm devoted to you, so if you become a nun, then I should totally become a priest. That's a bad reason. This, he is not repenting. Not repenting like she is. And so I think she's very right to fear that he is going to turn 
to the world again. Well, madam, sighed he, ye sigh as it pleaseth you, for yet wist ye me never false of my promise. I promised I was going to give up then, so I'm going to do it. And God defend, but I shall forsake the world as ye have done. For in the quest of the Sancriel, I had that time forsaken the vanities of the world, had not your love been. And if I had done so at that time with my heart, will, and thought, I had passed all the canictes that ever were in the Sancriel, except Sir Galahad, my son. And therefore, laddie, sith and ye have taken you to perfection, I must needes talk me to perfection of richt. For I tuck record of God, in you I have had mine earthly joy, and if I had found in you now so disposed, I had cast me to have had you into mine own realm. But, sith and I find you thus disposed, I ensure you faithfully, I will ever tuck me to penance and pray, while my life lasteth, if that I may find, un find any hermit, other grey or wheat, that will receive me, Wherefore, madam, I pray you kiss me, and never no more. Nay, sighed the queen, that shall I never do, but abstain you from such work is. He says three things in response, right? First, well, penance. You don't have to tell me about penance. I know all about penance, right? I did the penance thing, right? I mean, I'd, I'd, and if I had forsaken you, is he blaming her, right? He seems to be, right? I stayed faithful to you. I was supposed to give you up before, but I didn't do it, right? I didn't do it because I was a good lover. And I, 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 I was asked to choose between you and Christ, and I was supposed to choose Christ, and I said I would choose Christ, but in the end I didn't. Because that's how much I loved you. Right? He seems to be suggesting. It's like a guilt trip, almost. And pride. Right? No, I'm, seriously, I'm pretty good at, you know, forsaking the world. I mean, I'm totally going to forsake the world because I've had practice. I've done it already, once before. <laughs> right? So I totally know what I'm doing. When it comes to when it comes to forsaking the world, right? Then the second part of his speech is by the way, so my plan had been plan A had been I was gonna come and take you away and I was gonna marry you and we were gonna live happily ever after in France, right? But plan B can work. Right, if we're gonna do celibacy and abstinence and penance, great, great. I like that too. Let's do that then. Plan B, and I'll pray for you, uh, and that'll be great. So I'll still be faithful to you because you're doing this, and so I'll do it. To, I'll copy you, and everything. But would you marry me and go? It's almost like notice. How it's, it's almost like giving her an out here, right? I'll totally. But you know, if if if, if you did want to come to my kingdom and get married, we could still actually totally do that, right? Um, and then he ends with, "So just can I just have one last kiss before I go? Right? I'm going to totally start penance like tomorrow, but for now, can you kiss me one last time?" And she's like, "This is you not getting it." Right. Abstain you from such work as this is what I've been talking about. Right. Um, 
she's she's almost saying like, okay, I'm revising my opinion. I had said before, I may never believe you, but you will turn to the world again, right? And now she's like, no, it's not about will you turn to the world again. You're not actually turning away from it, right? If somebody says, I'm totally going to turn, you're right, our love was sinful and I'm going to repent of that. I'm totally going to repent of that. Starting tomorrow, um, can I just have another kiss? That is not, those are not the words of someone who has repented, right? She has, he has not. He doesn't get it yet. And this is a, 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 a rather rich turnaround, right? He was the one who got it before. Remember them at the beginning of the book of Lancelot and Guinevere when he was fresh from the quest for the Holy Grail. And she, he's trying to serve other ladies and, uh, and, and he's, he explains like, look, I, I said I would give this up and I want this to change. And anyway, people are suspicious and we got to be careful. She didn't get it. Right. Like all the spiritual stuff went way over her head. And she's like, all I see is that you're hanging out with other ladies and I'm jealous. Right. And she seemed petty and shallow and dumb. Right. Now her eyes have been opened. She has repented. She has re- achieved holiness. And he totally doesn't get it at all. Right. Turns out that practice, uh, you know, if you say, I'm really good at repenting because I do it all the time, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, um, you're going to do a good job at it, right? It might not mean you're good at it. It might mean you're bad at it, in fact. Um, yeah. He has a dream about Guinevere's death. And so he's now, he's dedicated himself, right? He's doing penance and everything. And he rushes back to Alma's Berry, right? To f- find her. And Juan Sir Launcelot was come to Alma's Berry within the nunnery. Queen Guinevere died but half an hour afore half an hour before he arrives. So we're going to have our big last Hollywood farewell, right? Not priestly. He's not a priest yet, but her eremitical Lancelot and, and, uh, uh, and, you know, Abbas Guinevere are going to have their last touching encounter. Nope. She dies half an hour beforehand. Um, why would she, that happen? Isn't that horribly anticlimactic? And the laddies that Sir Launcelot had uh, mm, wait, I think we're missing something here. Uh, hang on a second. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do this. Let me, let me just see where we are here. Because we're only a couple pages before the end. Uh, and the laddies told Sir Launcelot, that Queen Guinevere told him all or she passed that Sir Launcelot had been a priest near a twelve months. Okay, right. Um, so the ladies told Launcelot this is kind of complex. The ladies told Launcelot that Guinevere had told them that Sir Launcelot had become a priest. She knows this, right? 
and hither he cometh as fast as he may to fetch my course. He's coming here to fetch my body, and beside my lord King Arthur he shall bury me. Wherefore the queen sighed in hearing of him all, I beseech the Almighty God that I may never have power to see Sir Launcelot with my worldly iron. And thus, said all the laddies, was ever her prior these two dies till she was dead. Then Sir Launcelot saw her visage, but he wept not greatly, but sighed. And so he did all the observance and the service himself, both the uh, both the dirige and on the morn he sang mass. And there was ordained an horse beer, and so with an hundred torches ever brenning about the course of the queen, and ever Sir Launcelot with his ached fellows went about the horse beer, singing and reading many an holy orison and frankincense upon the corpse incensed. Okay, so, sorry, I said he wasn't a priest yet. I'd forgotten. He is a priest now, right? So he's actually taken orders here. Um, her prayer, the wording of her prayer is important. I beseech thee, Almighty God, that I may never have power to see Sir Launcelot with my worldly iron. There's a double meaning there. On the one hand, it means literally... I never want to see him again as long as I live. <laughs> right. Um, remember how she said she is asking him, like, never see me. I'm asking you, please, never see my face again. Right. We should never meet. It is part of penance. Right. If you're really, this was the problem, right, in the quest for the Holy Grail. If you're really sorry, then give it up. Right. If you're not willing to give it up, you're not really sorry, are you? Right. Guinevere really is sorry. She really does not want to meet him again. She has actually abandoned their relationship and repented of it. Right. But also this world, this word worldly is a really important one. It's not just worldly iron or not just her physical eyeballs. Right. Worldly is an important word, which we've seen that since the Grail quest. Right. Remember when um, when Elaine, too, was on her deathbed and her confessor was chiding her and being like, uh, could you let it go with Lancelot now? Can we focus on heaven, please? You're about to die. You should be repenting your sins, not lamenting your love. Um, and remember what Elaine said and how she protested that she doesn't do any sin by doing this, right? And remember the word that she kept using. She kept talking about she is an earthly woman, right? Um, and it is natural for her to love Lancelot as an, and he's an earthly man and she loves him as an earthly woman. She is not just saying, I don't want to see him anymore with my earthly eyes. That is to say, like my physical eyes, the eyes that God has given me, right? She says, I don't want to see Lancelot with my worldly eyes and worldly is a weighted world weighted word right um worldly is the opposite of heavenly the opposite of of spiritual right um she looked on lancelot with worldly eyes for a long time right that was kind of the problem the worldliness of her glance at of, of her looking at lancelot has been the problem all along, that's what she repented of. She seems to fear lest, like, 
to see him again is a temptation. And she doesn't want that. If he got to her bedside, if he was at her deathbed, she might be tempted to look upon him with worldly eyes again before she died. She is doing the reverse of what Elaine did. Right? Elaine refuses to stop talking about Lancelot on her deathbed. Go, uh, Guinevere doesn't want to go there. Doesn't want to tempt herself to go there on her deathbed. Right? She wants to focus herself entirely upon repentance, entirely upon heaven while she is on her deathbed. Notice Lancelot's reaction. This is super important. Um... We're coming up on, in my career as a literary scholar, I feel like I've made two discoveries. Uh, there are only two things that I've ever published where I think I found something that nobody else had ever really seen before. Um, one was in my Hobbit book uh, when I figured out partially by accident um, what Bilbo means when he calls himself the clue finder. That's, that's one. That's why I discovered that. That's a thing. Um, we're coming up on one, on one of the others in Mallory. Um, a mistake that I, th- I, I, what I became convinced was a, just a simple reading mistake that critic after critic after critic was making. It's just part of the critical tradition on, on the end of Mallory. Um, and I disagreed with it. I've always disagreed with it. And to me, this is really, this is where it begins. This is, this is one passage that people often overlooked. Lancelot, he's been doing a lot of penance, right? He had his lapse, right? He had his, we have reason to think that when he was seeing Guinevere for the last time, his heart wasn't really set on penitence fully yet. He's been doing a lot of repenting, Right. Um, he still doesn't seem to have quite achieved Guinevere levels. He's rushing to try to beat her death. She's wanting not to see him. He's still wanting to see her, it seems, right? But when he finds her dead and is looking upon the dead body of his beloved, he doesn't weep and wail. He sings mass for her. Um, but he doesn't greatly weep. But he sighs. Then look what happens. And when she was put in the earth, Sir Launcelot swooned, and lie long still, while the hermit come and awaked him, and sighed, Ye be to blam, for ye displease God with such manner of sorrow mocking. Truly, sighed Sir Launcelot, I trust I do not displease God. For he knoweth mine intent. For my sorrow was not, nor is not, for any rejoicing of sin. But my sorrow may never have end. For one I remember of here Bialte and of here Noblesse, that was both with her king and with her. So when I saw his corpse and her corpse so lie togetters, Truly mine heart would not serve to sustain my careful body. Also when I remember me how by my default and mine orgul and my pride that they were both lied full low, that were perilous, that ever was living of Christian people, wit you well 
sighed Sir Launcelot. This remembered of their kindness and mine unkindness sunk so to mine hurt that I make not sustain myself. So the French book mocketh mention. Here's my clue finder moment. Um, the traditional reading of this passage is that basically the critics all agreed with the Archbishop of Canter, the ex-Archbishop of Canterbury here, um, in his rebuke of Lancelot. Um, almost all of the old critics uh, s believed that Maori was depicting Lancelot as being, in the end of the day, unrepentant, right? You know, he might say that, uh, you know, he's repented, but he's not really repented. Right. Because here he is groveling in, in sorrow on the grave of his beloved. Here's Lancelot, still a courtly lover at the end of the day. For one, I remember of her. So when I remember of her beauty and of her nobility. And they, they, they used to quote that a lot. My argument, my 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 clue finder moment was the these two pronouns, here and here. In Middle English, here, H-I-R, usually means her. For, uh, third person, feminine, singular. But the pronoun for there, third person, plural, is also here. Usually spelled here, H-I-R-E, uh, but... Uh, which is, of course, where there comes from, um, T-H-E-I-R. Um, but sometimes not. Sometimes it does not have the E spelling, and you can find other examples in Maori. I think it is perfectly clear. He is not sorrowing. His sorrow is endless, not because he's remembering the beauty of his lady, but because he is now struck by their beauty and their Noblesse. That was both with her king and with her, right? He's saying, it's not about, I'm not weeping for her. I'm weeping over them. Notice when he sees her dead body, he doesn't cast himself upon her dead body and weep and wail. He doesn't weep greatly at all. He sighs only, right? He weeps and casts himself and swoons upon the earth when he sees the two of them together. Lance, uh, when he sees Arthur and Guinevere together in their tomb. And he thinks of the beauty and the nobility that they have together, right? What they were, what they meant, what he did. He can't sustain his careful body, his body full of cares, because he now sees, he now understands finally what Guinevere saw before. It was his fault, through his fault and his pride, that they were both laid full low. It's his fault that they're dead. Now Lancelot is finally... So see, notice how Mallory's kind of had it both ways. On the one hand, Lancelot was never a villain. Even when he was sinning, he wasn't that bad. He was still mostly in the right. And the accusations against them by Agravain and Mordred were almost entirely false, 
right? And Sir Meliagant is a scumbag, right? And a liar and dishonorable and everything, even though he is kind of a little bit right. Um, they've been in this, Lancelot especially, has been in this awkward place, right? Where he's mostly good. He's mostly right. He's legally justifiable almost entirely. But now he cuts through all the pretenses, right? All those things are true. He, he wasn't horrible. He wasn't Mordred. He wasn't Agravain. He wasn't even Gawain. But he was living a lie. He was trying to convince himself that it wasn't his fault. He wasn't taking responsibility for his sin and his failure to turn away from his sin, his lapse away, had he the unstated thing even before in that last conversation that he had with Guinevere, he was still saying, I, you know, I should have repented way back when I was told to repent and I I almost kind of repented, but he's still not seeing Lancelot. If you had repented, if you had done the hard thing and stayed away from Guinevere, if you had, then none of this would have happened. Arthur's court would not have fallen. He's right. Neither Arthur nor Guinevere would be dead had he succeeded in following through on the penance that was set for him, on the repentance that he set himself upon in the quest for the Holy Grail. It's his fault. And he sees that now. And he accepts responsibility for that now. And that's why he swoons. He's overwhelmed with that. When he remem- when, And it's seeing them together that does it. The burying of her. It's not just, he's not just thinking of her, certainly not as a lover. He's doing the opposite of that, right? Uh, and it's the sight of them together, the reunion of Arthur and Guinevere, the, who now together, lying there in state together, are now a symbol, but a dead symbol, of the greatness that has passed and which he destroyed. Then he sets himself to serious penance, and now everybody's impressed by Lancelot's penance, right? Until, finally, the night of his death. So at a season of the nicht they all went to their beddies, for they all lie in own chambre. And so after midnight, against die, the bishop that was ermit, as he lie in his bed asleep, he fell upon a great laughter. And therewith all the fellowship awoke, and come to the bishop, and asked him what he eyelid. Ah, Jesu, mercy, said the bishop, why did ye awake me? I was never in all my life so merry and so well at ease. Wherefore, said Sir Bors. Truly, sighed the bishop, here was Sir Launcelot with me, and with more angelis than ever I saw men in Ondai. And I saw the Angelus heave up Sir Launcelot unto heaven, and the yachts of heaven opened against him. It is but dretching of swavens, sighed Sir Bors, for I doubt not Sir Launcelot eileth nothing but good. It may well be, sighed the bishop, go ye to his bed, and then shall ye, shall ye prove the soth. So when Sir Bors and his fellows come to his bed, they found him stark dead, and he lie as he had smiled, and the sweetest savour about him that ever they felt. 
Than was there weeping and wringing of handes, and the greatest dole they mad that ever mad men. Ocarina, they had Arthur's body. The question was just whether or not they could prove that it was Arthur's body. Um, and I don't think, by the way, when he was burying Guinevere, that he was like totally disinterring Arthur. Um, when he was seeing them together, I think it's like their graves, which are next to each other. Right. So it's not literally like they're such beautiful corpses and those corpses look so good together. It's not it's not quite that literal, I think. Just looking at the two of them together, Lan- uh, I keep saying Lancelot, Arthur and Guinevere side by side. Right. That's um, I think what it was, uh, what it was. So cause his grave is there. The question is whether that's actually his body that's in it. But um, uh, anyway, anyway, okay. So Lancelot, uh, you will have recognized the phrase, right? And he lie as he had smiled, just like Elaine, right? Just like Elaine of Astolat. Um, Lancelot's smile, the sweet savor that comes from his corpse, and the bishop's vision and his laughter, right? The pure joy, the merriment of this dream, the dream of Lancelot's death, right? Um, tells us this, there, there can be no firmer endorsement, right, of the idea. He got it right. Lancelot got it right. He has repented. It's, it's worked, right? Lancelot has now come to a good end. His final, truly sincere repentance, he finally gets it, and he got it right. And now he is gone, and that's good, right? He is not going to look at Guinevere with with worldly eyes anymore. He wasn't looking at her with worldly eyes or thinking about her, you know, with worldly thoughts uh, when they buried her. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, And now he's come to a good end. But again, remember that little mention? Right? Guinevere came to a good end first. And she, in the end, ends up being instrumental to his seeing the truth. Right? She ends up leading to his repentance, demonstrating repentance for him. Right? Um, If, what would have happened? Right. Had she said, um, um, had she said yes to his marriage proposal and they'd gone back to live in France and live out their uttermost days in happiness and bliss together, they could have done that. Right. And then what? That wouldn't be a good end. That's not happily ever after. This is happily ever after. And then the last word. The last word is from uh, uh, Sir Ector, Lancelot's brother, his full brother, right? And he gives the famous eulogy of Lancelot here. Ah, Lancelot, he sighed, thou wert head of all Christian connectis, and now I dare sigh, sighed Sir Ector, thou, Sir Lancelot, there thou liest, that thou were never matched of earthly connectis hand, and thou were the curtest connect that ever bar shield.' 
and thou wert the truest friend to thy lover that ever bestrod horse, and thou wert the truest lover of a sinful man that ever loved woman, and thou wert the kindest man that ever struck with sweard, and thou wert the goodliest person that ever came among press of Canictes, and thou was the meekest man and the gentlest that ever ate in hall among laddies, and thou were the sternest Canict to thy mortal foe that ever put spear in the rest. Than there was weeping and dolor out of measure. I love the, uh, what seems very deliberate, in fact, uh, almost perfectly balanced, uh, contradictions here, right? Um, notice how Ector doesn't say, on the one hand, Lancelot was a pretty darn good knight, right? He was great on horseback. He could really, you know, beat people up with great regularity, right? He was, uh, he was an awesome fighter and he was also a good lover and pretty virtuous too, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He keeps going back and forth. He keeps balancing these things together, Right, you were the most courteous knight that ever bare shield. Uh, you were the truest friend to your lover that ever bestrode horse. Okay, like the, they they don't see like what does bearing a shield have to do with being courteous, right? Well, nothing. I, again, he's describing the military accoutrements of a knight, right? The military accomplishments of a knight. You were the best knight. But you were the best knight ever to do. So, so uh, while he's praising him for those physical things, he is simultaneously and repeatedly balancing the two, praising him for his virtuous things. Um, it's interesting that Actor's voice is the last one that we get here. We're not left only with the repentance. We're not left with the purely spiritual which is where we ended otherwise, right? Guinevere and Lancelot both repented fully. Lancelot turned away from knightliness at the end, right? He became a hermit and then a priest, just as Guinevere became an abbess um, and more concerned with the spiritual instruction of the other nuns in the nunnery than she was certainly uh, with her worldly desires for Lancelot. Um, both of them turned away from those things. But the last voice that Mallory gives us is Actors, who is coming in. He's not even been one of Lancelot's companions. He's been hunting around for his brother for a heck of a time, and then he comes and discovers that here he's been undergoing penance and becoming a priest, and there's Sir Bors and Sir Bleoberus and everybody else uh, hanging out there also as hermits and priests. Um, and, um, Hector is outside that new culture, right? He's outside that world of repentance. He's still in, he's still praising him for being the truest friend to thy lover that ever bestrode, bestrode horse. He was a great lover, says Hector, right? From Hector, we get this almost completely worldly praise of Lancelot at the end, and so I think there are a couple things that we can see here. One, I think that we can see the balance there between those two things. This is sort of like the final attempt to capture the essence of chivalry, right? Chivalry means strength of arms, right? That's how you work up the leaderboard. That's what being a knight is about, being 
the sternest knight to thy mortal foe that ever put spear in the rest. But it is also to be the meekest and the gentlest, to be the goodliest, to be the truest, um, to be the kindest. Right, the kindest man that ever stroke with strake with sword is a wonderful sentence. Right, he's the kindest man that ever decapitated anybody. Right, um, he is both. That's what it means to be a knight, to be both, uh, to be both of those things simultaneously. And Lancelot captured that. Right, but at the same time, we're not allowed to forget the this much more purely worldly vision of knighthood. Right even after Lancelot himself has completely turned away, um, turned away from it, right? Um, and that seems to me really significant. I don't think that... Hector sounds a little bit clueless. I mean, there's a sense in which his eulogy seems out of tune with what has been happening, right? He's an, he doesn't get it. He's not been part of this whole penance deal, Right. Um, but, um, but I don't think we're just supposed to be embarrassed listening to this eulogy, right? I I think if our reaction to this is, boy, does he not get it, right? Then I think we're missing the point here too. Um, I think that the repentance, the complete abandonment of worldly knighthood, that's where Lancelot had to go because he messed up, Right. Um, he was a sinful man. He made mistakes. He made the wrong decision. In the end, he did the right thing. He did the only right thing that he could have done. But that doesn't mean that Mallory is giving up on the concept of knighthood that Lancelot has represented and fought for the whole time, right? And so we get one last glimpse at that knighthood which Lancelot wanted to embody tried to embody, ultimately failed perfectly to embody. Notice how even Hector has, of a sinful man, embedded in the very middle of that eulogy, right? Um, yeah. Um, I read this, therefore, as Mallory's final, like, commendation, upholding, I guess I should say, of that concept, of that of that vision of knighthood. In the end, of course, it's dead. It's a eulogy, right? Um, but the memory of that lives on, not just of his repentance. He's not only going to be remembered as a great penitent uh, and priest and saint, he's going to be remembered as a great knight, because that knighthood of which he was the greatest example was a good thing. It's gone now part of the old world that has passed away, but it's still a good thing, and a good thing to be remembered. And that, my dear friends, brings us to the end of Mallory's La Morte d'Arthur. Thank you. I did promise you one more class session. We're going to meet again next week uh, to, uh, by popular demand, discuss that greatest of Arthurian adaptations, uh, Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. Um, so the, one little bit of sort of confusion. Um, uh, we're n- we're not going to be able to use this same link again. I tried to 
extend it by one more week and it wouldn't let me. So we're going to have to, I'm going to have to have a brand new link for next week's class, which I'm kind of vexed by, but there it is. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. We'll post that on the page, uh, the webpage. It'll be posted on social media and stuff too. So I uh, hope you won't be too confused if you try to click on the old link again one more time. Uh, thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for coming along on this journey with me and uh, we'll have one more one more Arthurian discussion next week until of course we talk about Camelot with the movie club at the end of the month but thanks everybody good night now